Have we put habit formation on too high of a pedestal? Dr. Michelle Seeger has spent close to 30 years studying how to create healthy behaviors that can withstand the complexity and the unpredictability of the real world. And she's starting to think that the secret may actually be to unhabit our health behaviors. She and I talk about why health behaviors in particular may be resistant to habit formation strategies and what may work better. All right. All right, everyone, take your seats or lace up your sneaks. We're about to get started. Welcome to the Change Academy podcast. I'm your host, Monica Reinagel, and in this show, we talk about what it takes to create healthier mindsets and habits in our own lives, as well as how we can create healthier communities and workplaces. Whether you're working on your own health and well-being or promoting healthy behaviors is your job, we're going to talk about what works, what's hard, what's needed, and what's next. Let's jump in. Michelle Seeger and I have been friends for a couple of years now. We're both in the health promotion and the behavioral health world. And as you know, my area of expertise is nutrition. She has specific interest in fitness. But after the first few times we talked, and one of the earliest conversations actually took place on this podcast a little over a year ago, we realized that we have a lot of shared beliefs and goals and philosophies And we've started to look for ways to work together more. So just one example, last year, members in our Way Less Alumni Association, which we affectionately refer to as the Sailing Club, we chose her book, The Joy Choice, to read together over the summer and discuss. And then Michelle actually joined us in that private community to discuss her book. It was awesome. And just as an aside, if you belong to a book club, I can highly recommend this as a book to read in a group. And Michelle has even put together a discussion guide for book clubs to use if they want to read the book together. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And you can even request a personal appearance from Michelle at your club's online discussion. That's pretty cool, I think. But in addition to writing books for us regular people, Michelle also publishes regularly in scientific journals. And it was an article that she recently published in the American Journal of Health Promotion that got my attention. She was arguing that habits are really not the solution to the problem or the challenge of creating healthier behaviors or lifestyles. Now, As you'll hear in our discussion, there's a lot of nuance to this position, but this is exactly the kind of thing I thought you'd want to hear more about. So welcome back to the Change Academy, Michelle. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. And you made a provocative statement a few months back that if we really want to create lasting change in our eating and our exercise habits, and I know that's something that most of the people listening to this podcast are working on, if we want to get that done we're going to need to stop leaning so hard on habits as the solution to that problem. I did say that. (laughs) Well, and I think it's a really valuable sort of shock to the system to say that because we have just had such an infatuation with habits over the last 10 or 15 years, all these best-selling books James Clear's Atomic Habits, Charles Duhigg's The Power of Habit. And it's created this impression or this assumption that 
habits are actually the solution to all of our little behavioral challenges. We just need to establish better habits. And when we succeed in doing that, then we just won't have to think about it anymore. It'll just all happen automatically without any further effort on our part. But you're saying that habits may not be as powerful as we think. And in the title of your paper in the American Journal of Health Promotion, you said habit formation has been overvalued as a behavior change strategy, and that maybe we need to learn to unhabit, which is a fun kind of word. But say a little bit more about this. Is this a new position that you have arrived at? Well, um, you know, I think we have to think critically when we're being given a strategy and told it will work equally well across life arenas and behaviors. Um, And this is an example of one of those things, in my opinion. I'm not the only one. There's people, actual habit researchers, which I am not, actually having a conversation in the literature about whether habit formation, whether it's a valuable and valid uh, behavior change technique for complex behaviors that don't just are not one-offs, like putting your keys down in the same place every day or mm-hmm. doing your dishes as soon as you eat, um, which is a habit that I wish I had, but don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we wait long enough, there's always that chance that someone else in the household will get tired of them oh, first and wash them. <laughs> especially if they're a habiter, and I do have one of those. Um, but anyway, I think we need to to understand that when it comes to complex behaviors like healthy eating, which, and this is your, right, this is your area, but let me just dive in for a minute and say, you know, what do we have to do? We have to shop. We have to get the groceries to make the meals and we may have to do vegetable prep and washing and cutting and cooking and following through and and all these things. And with physical activity, There could be a, we have to make a plan and we might have to change our clothes and we might have to drive someplace. I mean, there are all these elements and habit formation technically in the literature and popularly has to do with creating an automatic association between a cue, which for flossing would be, you know, maybe brushing Mm -hmm. and you, number one is the cue. Number two is the flossing, the behavior. And number three is some type of reward, which could be a sense of satisfaction in the mouth, you know, um, having a clean mouth, whatever, whatever it is. And that this sequence, the more it happens, the more your brain learns to do it automatically. Um, but when you think about healthy eating and exercise, that system kind of breaks down for a lot of us. There's so many more variables at play. And in that article, you do highlight some popular beliefs about habits. And maybe these are even beliefs that have been adopted by researchers in the in the field or writers. Some popular assumptions that, that we may need to re-examine. And you're kind of talking about one of them, and that is that all behaviors are equally amenable to habitualization and that you know complex behaviors as you're describing like adopting healthier eating habits where there's so many little pieces to them but also 
so many cross currents, things that are not under our direct control that could get in the way of those, whether it's having to work late or the babysitter gets sick and isn't going to show up or the dog starts throwing up or, you know, whatever it is, flat tire. There's so many things that can undermine our best laid plans. Those are the kinds of behaviors that may not be the most appropriate subjects for habit formation techniques. Is that is that a fair statement? Absolutely. Absolutely. That is exactly that's my concern. And mm-hmm. Allison Phillips is a habit researcher that I really respect. And we were having a conversation. I, you know, I, I think it's really important that we do talk to people where we disagree or have some disagreements and some agreements. I mean, as you and I have discussed in the past, the way to really know the elephant better is to see different perspectives and to examine them sure, and to try to be open, but also to be able to push back when we feel like we need to. And, and that's how we learn things. And she and I were talking about the fact that, you know, it's too bad we can't figure out another word for having a routine, mm. like a plan, like every Tuesday, like the way we're taught to think about it. Again, in popular, the popular behavior change story or narrative is, I have an exercise habit, and that might refer to going to the gym Monday, Wednesday, Friday at a certain time. But maybe uh, if it weren't automatized and it's something that you would ideally like to do, but there might be some wiggle room. Like we were talking about the fact, like, gosh, it would be so awesome if we could come up with a different word for this other type of thing. And we really, we, you know, at least in this one conversation we had, we we couldn't come up with another word. But words matter. Like that's another really important part of this conversation is the words we use to try to change our behavior influence how we see the behavior, the daily choices, but also what we think we need to bring to the conversation. And the notion of habit is so, even if it just means a routine as opposed to something that's automatic outside of consciousness, it's so about this thing that happens in our life and not that we choose to do again and again and again but I feel like it obscures the real decision-making prowess that we need on a daily basis. Right. And the fact that we will need to continue to choose those behaviors, navigate those choice points, which is a phrase that I learned from reading your book, The Joy Choice. Even if we have those routines in place, we're constantly going to have to be navigating little bumps in the road and making choices about those. And so maybe it's just, it sets us up for disappointment to feel like, wait a minute, I created a habit. I I shouldn't have to worry about this or, you know, this shouldn't be an effort for me anymore. Um, yes. Then we feel like if it is an effort, then we've done something wrong. Yes. And let's take a huge step back from this conversation of, you know, changing our behavior, complex behaviors like intentional eating or intuitive eating and exercise and physical activity and think about the other complex areas of our lives, like our partnerships, our marriages, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, our jobs. We would never, parenting, we would never expect those to be so automated that we wouldn't have to pivot and problem solve and have non-optimal things that we do, right? But we, yet in these other areas of life, we give ourselves grace. We expect that we will need to do those things. 
I love that insight that we kind of have a, a double standard or we put these health behaviors, these self-care behaviors in a slightly different category, which almost underestimates the the complexity and, and the, the ongoing effort that will be involved. That's a great insight. I think that, you know, we say we, but I, I think it's really important to point out that this is a story of behavior change that the population has learned, you know, has been told and sold by marketers, by research that is that we now know is outdated because it assumes ration, you know, rationality, lots of things. So I think it's really important for people to understand it's not that we've done this to ourselves, it's that we've been told to do this by mm-hmm. the whole behavior change industry. And again, I don't think most professionals, certainly, you know, as a researcher, I wouldn't say that researchers have been trying to misguide people. It's people are, have had the best, most people have the best intentions when it comes to helping people try to change their behavior. It's just, it's just the way that this advice has evolved. It's the state of evolution of what we know about behavior change and psychology. You're right. I don't think that any researchers have intentionally set out to to mislead or misguide people. And yet I know from my own field of nutrition that as our knowledge and understanding evolve and change, sometimes it turns out that something that we put a lot of weight behind was was based on a false premise and we need to retrench. But it can be difficult to turn those ships around yes. sometimes when a lot of public health policy has been built around them and a lot of training and assumptions. So yeah, there's no malicious intent. And yet sometimes it can be, it can take longer than it should for errors to be recognized yes. and responded to. Yes. And it can take devastating things like in the fitness industry, the pandemic Mm-hmm. Um, brought the fitness industry to their knees because it gym gyms places of exercise were not considered essential, and so what that did was get people. In, again, this is just the fitness industry. This is a singular, you know, industry, but it got people in industry to really do some reckoning about what they've been telling people they are and what they're what they help people with. Because when they, people were pretty surprised, leaders, you know, the whole industry, when they were left out of the essential business. And, you know, as someone whose work is in helping people promote healthier lifestyles, and you can imagine how people, you know, people who are regularly active, we all know the incredible health and well being benefits that regular movement brings. And yet, places that were helping people do that were shut down and were considered essential health spaces. So, but that's speaking to your point that it's really hard to change. And sometimes it takes just huge disruption for it to happen. It takes mavericks like you publishing articles in the American Journal of Health Promotion saying habits are bullshit, basically. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, I don't want to say. No, of course, that was my words, not Michelle's. Absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, a, a minute ago, uh, Michelle, you mentioned that we rely too heavily on this sort of rational decision making process that we think that that's going to be 
how decisions get made based on rational information, logic, and understanding. And I know from conversations that you and I have had and the work that we each do with people, we know that there is so much more than just logic and knowing what you should do or what you want to do that goes into the actual behaviors that we enact. And just to acknowledge, as you say in your paper, that the habit formation, creating a habit or attempting to create a habit is never going to be enough to overrule internal conflicts that we may have about eating and exercise, which may be more in the realm of emotional responses, memories, associations, not logical, not rational, and yet ultimately perhaps a more powerful influence over our choices than our ideas about what the right thing to do is. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. And I'm betting your listeners are going to relate to that, right? Because people start a change in behavior related to their eating or exercise or, you know, those are those tend to have more emotional um, histories than something like trying to get more sleep or meditation, right? Because they're complicated. They're related to our bodies and whether we felt shamed or accepted in society. Um, And so when it comes to a point of decision, newer thinking, both in the eating literature and in the exercise science base, is going in this direction that these emotional experiences we've had, you know, for physical activity, if they've been negative, being shamed in PE or feeling like you don't fit in 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 some type of aerobic class or gym or whatever, that those aren't just experiences we've had in a vacuum, that they actually accumulate and they are present whether we realize it or, or not. When we are making the decision right now about whether we're going to go to that gym class again, or to another, uh, take a walk out in public or whatever it is. Right. And we, and we overlook them at our peril. They need to be invited in to our conscious awareness and involve, well, it's not like we can involve an emotion in a decision-making process, but they need to be involved in our planning and our decision-making process. We can't just ignore that and base everything on what we think we know or what we think we want. We, we have to make room for those emotional associations. And you mentioned, because I think a lot of people have some negative association with some form of physical exercise that then sort of haunts them as they try to embrace uh, physical activity in their current lives, knowing that it has so many benefits, knowing that they want the outcomes that will create still those those emotional associations. And you and I have also talked about, and you've talked about with our Wayless members, sort of an inverse situation where with foods, we often have positive emotional resonance and associations, foods that we associate with happy memories or warm, comforting feelings of family and belonging and tenderness and caregiving. And if those are then the foods that we rationally recognize, we need to limit or avoid in our life we need to acknowledge that because we're we're being asked to give up something that has great meaning to us. And then we wonder why we never seem to be strong enough to do it. Yes, absolutely. And we blame ourselves, right? Yes. Instead of understanding, gosh, I've 
I've never been given a framework that helps me understand how potent these forces are in my daily decision making. And of course, if there's a potent force and we don't understand it, then it's just going to keep keep at us and keep getting in the way and thwarting what we actually want. Right. And habit formation is just never going to be a strong enough wedge against those kinds of forces. I and maybe it depends on whether someone is very has a lot of self-control or not. Can I uh, can I give you a brief example of that? Yes, and you and I have had many interesting conversations about this topic of self-control and whether that is sort of an innate characteristic, how much of it is about the circumstances of our lives, you know, but go ahead, yeah, give you, give your example and maybe we can dig into that a little bit more. Yes, well, I mean, it has to do with I mean, I think there are some people and I don't think the majority, I think they're the minority who can harness that level of self-control and willpower day in and day out. And this just brief story I want to tell you is I was speaking about the need to have physical activity be a positive experience Mm -hmm. um, to consumers. um, And someone stood up and was really pretty enraged with me at my proposition, which is is science-based. But And she said, you know, I hate swimming and I've been doing it every day for 40 years. So she was really like saying, F you, Michelle. I mean, she was really angry, you know, and. Well, um, who could blame her? She's been doing something she hates every day for 40 years. That would make me angry. Okay. So what was her point? Well, her point is, which is what I, what I think, what I want to just make sure that the caveat they want to make sure that people understand from my perspective is that some people can push through the punishment and disdain day in and day out. It's mm. just not the majority of people. And so if it works for someone, I'm not trying to tell people that you shouldn't be doing it that way. I'm tr- I'm personally speaking to the people who it hasn't worked for. Exactly. Exactly. This isn't about everybody having to do it the same way, but I agree with you. I think it's the majority of people who find that their attempts to form healthier habits are not really sufficient to achieve those habits. And so, yeah, let's not argue about whether anyone can do it. Let's just offer some alternatives for those who have tried and are not finding that to be a helpful approach. Yes. hundred percent. And to that end, like what is more helpful, what could work if in those situations or for those people for whom approaching things from a framework of habits and let's just build in the correct cues and the correct triggers, if that's not working, what could work? And one of the things that you talk about that is so resonant with the work that I do in with my clients, but also we've talked about it so much on this podcast over the years, and that is the role of our identity and our values in guiding the decisions that we make and incorporating those into our um, our programs of self of self improvement. Absolutely, and you know, in my system of sustainable change, helping people really become aware of what values do they have. It's actually more about in what ways does this behavior that you know mostly I focus on physical activity. In what ways does being more physically active truly deliver benefits to who you are, who you want to be, and and the people and projects that are most meaningful to you? And that is about identity. Um, 
And, you know, I believe some of the most promising research going on in behavior change, well, well, sustainable change is related to identity too. So I kind of bring both the scientist and the practitioner hat to this conversation. And I found that once people start to think about it in that way, it literally changes the frame, flips the switch, gets them to rethink, reframe the whole proposition. And going back to what you said earlier, if you think about how much, for example, an eating choice, if you're trying to eat in certain ways and the the mantra or MO or programmatic focuses, these things that you have to cut out have deep, positive, personally meaningful resonance or associations with you about family and friends and community and celebration and joy. Think about how that's going to compete Mm -hmm. against a choice that means a should or shame or I'm not good enough. Now take that same juxtaposition and say, okay, there are choices we want to make that are about community and family and joy and celebration. Um, And it's not to say, you know, I'm not going into all or nothing thinking, but let's say that instead of shoulds and shame, the other choices are about feeling better and having more energy and knowing that you actually enjoy your work more or being a parent more or whatever it is, because eating in a certain way helps you feel your best. And I know be your best. That's such a, it sounds so, what's the word? Um, Corny. But it's actually really true. And think about how then it evens the playing field, right? When our choices really represent something deeply meaningful and positive about who we are and who we're becoming compared to, you know, the old story of behavior change, which is about following someone else's rules and someone else's prescriptions because I'm not good enough the way I am. To achieve someone else's goals. For us, yes. right? And when you say evens the playing field, what comes to mind is that what what I think you're saying, what I take away from that is there may still be trade-offs. There may still be times when you have to trade one value yes. off against another value. Yes. But that's at least a fair fight. Whereas being asked to trade a value away for a should yes. is not a fair fight. And yes. So those listeners who did the 50,000 mile tune-up program with us, which you can still do, you can, it's, it's in the archives. We have a workbook for it. You can, you can still go back and do it at any time, but it was sort of a, an all systems look at our life, how the different pieces of it are working. And of course we talked about nutrition and eating behaviors and physical activity. We talked about a lot of other things like sleep and stress management and time management, but the whole thing started with a really extensive exploration of identity and values, what we value in our lives, because that then holds the key to everything that comes after, you know, and when we are trying to decide what we want to do, you know, and and what we are committing to, what we're willing to commit to, if we haven't tied it to, as I think you said so beautifully just a minute ago, who we want to be and who we want to become, that's even more exciting, you know, then it, boy, it just, it's like a house of cards. It collapses at the first little puff of wind. So, so just by way of saying like, amen, Michelle. (laughs) (laughs) I, Yes, the house of cards. Absolutely. You know, 
if you build a house on a shaky foundation or an unstable foundation, the house that you're investing in is just not set up to stay standing. Yeah. So it gets back to this really bigger picture also conversation of have the things we've been taught to do either as practitioners and or just individual people um, in terms of creating healthier lifestyles, are they based on assumptions that that are accurate? Like you were talking about the assumption of rationality while we've got this whole emotional side that we know really beats out our rational thinking at the point of decision. You know, that's Daniel Kahneman's work with some of the you know, the work that really brought this to the forefront, right? Yes, in economics. Yeah, I was thinking of that when we were talking about it earlier. Yeah, it's always um, worthwhile to examine our assumptions and the beliefs that we're bringing to things. And sometimes we may come out uh, with our with our beliefs strengthened and our and our assumptions supported. And sometimes we may have to to rethink them. But being able to be in dialogue with one another, whether it's research peers and community, you and me and you and all of our listeners, that's what makes that possible and and fun, really. So th- I so appreciate your sharing your explorations with us and being willing to, you know, get a little messy with these conversations because those are the ones that actual insight come out of. So always appreciate you coming on the show. Well, thank you. And I mean, I think I really love being in dialogue with you and because we continue to peel the onion, if you will, right? (laughs) Yeah. And I just want to mention to listeners who didn't grab your book when it came out last year, it's now out in paperback, which is fun. And you have put together a discussion guide for book clubs to to use if they want to read this book together. And we had a wonderful experience with our book club discussion club with your book. And so I can highly recommend that this is a great book to read in a group because it is so much about application and implementation and trial and error. And I feel like we can always do that more effectively when we're doing that with partners. So just a little plug for the Joy Choice (laughs) as a great selection for book clubs. And we look forward to um, your next incendiary statement <laughs> that will give me an excuse to um to bring you back on for another conversation but thanks so much for for being with us today Michelle. Thanks for having me Monica. So as promised in the show notes you'll see a link to Michelle's book The Joy Choice as well as to her new book discussion guide and I also have included a link to her journal article on habits as an overrated strategy. Whether you're working on your own health behaviors or I know that we have a lot of coaches and fitness trainers who listen to this podcast who are supporting other people in that type of work. I think you're going to find Michelle's work to be a really valuable resource and a a fresh voice in this conversation. So definitely get yourself on her mailing list. And as I said earlier, book discussion groups are one of the fun things that we do in the Sailing Club, which is an ongoing support community for people who have done the Way Less program with us. And just a shout out for those Sailing Club members who might be listening to the show, I have a fun new book in mind for our next discussion, so stay tuned for more on that. But that Way Less program, unfortunately, is not accepting new members at the moment. We're sort of under construction, and we're doing our best to minimize the disruption to our current members, and that means that that construction project is taking a little bit longer than we would like or than it otherwise would. 
But listen, if you have been waiting for an opportunity to join the Wayless program and you're ready to get started now, I do have a limited availability to do some private coaching with people in order to bridge that gap. So feel free to reach out to me at monica at wayless.life and we can chat more about that. All right. Thanks, everyone. This has been the Change Academy podcast with Monica Reinagel. Our show is produced by me, Brock Armstrong. You'll find links to everything Monica mentioned in today's episode in our show notes, as well as on our website at changeacademypodcast.com, where you can also send us an email or leave us a voicemail. If you're finding this podcast helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or even better, give our show a rating or review in your favorite podcast app. Or, best of all, share this episode with a friend or colleague you think would enjoy it. Now here's to the changes we choose.